Hello, and welcome to the History of Tammany Hall, Episode 4, The Federal Ship Hamilton. This episode will be the second and final part of our little background mini-series, where we've been taking a step back and looking at the history of New York City in the years leading up to the founding of the Tammany Society in 1789. Last time, we considered the broader social and economic context that emerged as New York attempted to rebuild itself in the aftermath of the Revolutionary War. Though the city suffered greatly during years of wartime British occupation, the 1780s saw New York emerge as America's most populous and economically vibrant city. It was also, for the time being, the new nation's capital. This time, it's all about the politics. We'll take a look at the legal system, factions, and disputes that marked New York's political scene in this decade. Above all, the 1780s can be classified as a period of transitions and new beginnings. The departure of many wealthy and powerful loyalists created ample opportunities for young and ambitious upstarts to rise up the political ladder. Furthermore, we're still at least a decade away from the emergence of anything resembling a formal party system in America. Instead, Politics was dominated by individuals who could use some combination of personal wealth, family connections, and sheer talent to gain influence in a system of fluid and unstable alliances. As the episode's title indicates, the most influential of these figures was Alexander Hamilton. In time, he would become one of the most prominent early foes of the Tammany Society, However, for now, he was the driving intellectual and organizational force in New York politics. Many of the individuals with whom he would later cross swords were drawn to his brand of federalist politics in this earlier period. Alright, so let's start things off by looking at the legal and political structures that governed New York politics. Legally, New York State was subject to the State Constitution of 1777. Now, I'll try not to get bogged down in all the gory details here. The specific provisions of a long-dead state constitution may not be the basis for scintillating radio. However, the Constitution did include a few distinctive points that would shape New York politics for the next few decades. I think these are worth focusing on. The Constitution was primarily drafted by John Jay in the early days of the Revolutionary War, and the document reflects the ideological leanings of its framer. Some aspects of the Constitution were decidedly radical for the times. This is particularly true of the document's commitment to a Republican form of government. However, some other provisions were far more conservative. First, Suffrage was subject to highly restrictive property qualifications. In particular, only men who owned at least 100 pounds worth of property were qualified to vote in gubernatorial or state senate elections. I always love to say gubernatorial. As a result, New York's electorate was a tiny and unrepresentative portion of the total population. While New York State claimed some 340,000 total residents in 1790, 
Only 16,000 ballots were cast in the hotly contested gubernatorial election of 1792. These property qualifications were particularly controversial in New York City, where a dense population meant that land ownership was limited. One interesting note before we move on, while women were explicitly denied the right to vote, there was no racial restriction on the franchise under this constitution. However, in practice, the steep property qualifications effectively prevented most free black men from voting. Next, the Constitution of 1777 established a Council of Appointment, which filled government positions throughout the state. Critically, this provision applied to most local government officials, including the mayor of New York City. As a result, the city's residents would not elect a mayor through direct popular election until 1834. Membership of the Council of Appointment included the governor and four members of the state senate who were, in turn, selected by the assembly. In addition to naming the mayor, this board controlled a slew of valuable patronage positions across the state. As such, control of the Council of Appointment would prove to be one of the more hotly contested battlefields in New York politics in the years to come. The first elections held under this constitution would see George Clinton take the governorship. He would hold this position through the remainder of the Revolutionary War and would not leave office until 1795. New York City, of course, was still under British occupation at the time, so the Council of Appointment would not name an independent mayor until 1784 when James Duane got the job. Let's move on now and take a look at some of the groups and individuals who strode across the New York political stage in the 1780s. Above all, state politics was dominated by three factions organized some of the wealthiest and most powerful families in the state, the Schuylers, the Livingstons, and the Clintons. In later decades, opponents of these factions would take to calling these families the New York aristocracy. Tammany Hall would become a gathering spot for the so-called New York democracy, which hoped to check their power. However, that all lies in the future. For now, these three factions all had their own sources of strength. Here's how one 19th century historian neatly described the state of play. Quote, the Clintons had power, the Livingstons had numbers, and the Schuylers had Hamilton. Of these three families, the Schuylers were the most established in New York. One of New York's most notable old Dutch families, the Schuylers first settled in New Netherland in the 1650s. Originally based in and around Albany, the Schuylers accumulated holdings throughout the state via marriages with other prominent Dutch families, such as the Van Cortlands, the Van Rensselaers, and the Roosevelts. During the 1780s, the Schuyler family's nominal head was Philip Schuyler, a major general in the Continental Army who, if not for illness, would have overseen the ill-fated American invasion of Canada in 1775. In time, Schuyler would serve as one of New York's two original senators in the first Congress. However, the true force within the Schuyler faction was Alexander Hamilton, who married Philip's daughter Elizabeth in 1780. 
Now, I'm sure most of you have a pretty decent understanding of Hamilton's life and career. A fair amount has been written or sung about him, so I'm not going to go into a huge amount of detail here. Still, suffice it to say that by the 1780s, Hamilton had risen from a poor childhood in the Caribbean and had clearly established himself as one of the most brilliant figures of his generation. During the war, Hamilton served as one of Washington's most trusted lieutenants. After independence, he settled in New York and quickly became one of the city's most successful lawyers, alongside John Jay, James Kent, and Aaron Burr. These were all relatively young men who were able to take advantage of the departure of some of the elite Tories who had long dominated the city's bar. Hamilton's personal ties to Washington and the Schuylers gave his immense talents the opportunity to bloom. In the years we're discussing in this episode, he was, without a doubt, the most energetic and influential figure in New York politics. At this time, Hamilton developed a distinctive brand of Federalist ideology. He emphasized the importance of economic growth and development of a strong central government. Though a committed Republican, he was wary of excessive democracy and believed that the government should reflect existing social hierarchies. For a time, uh, Hamilton's vision would predominate in the young country. Next up are the Livingstons, who were among the wealthiest families in New York by the time of the American Revolution. After emigrating from the town of Ancrum in Scotland in the 1670s, the Livingstons received a royal charter for a massive grant of 160,000 acres in today's Dutchess and Columbia counties. By the 18th century, there were several branches of the family, and Livingstons pop up pretty regularly throughout New York's colonial history. By the time of the Revolution, the Livingston faction was led by Robert Livingston, an advocate of independence and a member of the Continental Congress, where, in 1776, he served alongside Thomas Jefferson, John Adams, Ben Franklin, and Roger Sherman on the so-called Committee of Five, which was tasked with drafting the Declaration of Independence. From 1777, Robert Livingston served as the Chancellor of New York, the state's highest judicial office, and the only position that rivaled the governor in statewide power. For the rest of his career, Livingston would go by the nickname the Chancellor. In 1789, he achieved probably his highest claim to historical fame when, as the highest-ranking judge on hand, he administered the oath of office at Washington's first inauguration. The third of these families, the Clintons, were relative newcomers. Governor Clinton's father, Charles, was an Irish-born Presbyterian who arrived in America in 1729. The family settled in the relative wilds of the western side of the Hudson River in what is now Orange County in the foothills of the Catskills. Charles Clinton would gain some local prominence as a landowner and surveyor. However, his son George was really responsible for his family's rise as a political force. Clinton first made a name for himself as a young lawyer and an ardent critic of British rule in the 1760s and 70s, 
I guess you could say that George Clinton did not find Parliament to be particularly funkadelic. Sorry for that. When war broke out, Clinton was commissioned as a brigadier general in the New York State Militia, and he used his position as a springboard for a successful run in the governor's race of 1777. Throughout his career, Clinton struck a populist tone. He cultivated an earthy, plain-spoken manner and positioned himself as the voice of the small landowners and tenant farmers of the upper Hudson Valley. As we noted in the last episode, these communities were the true backbone of New York State's population at this time. Clinton's continued popularity with this group uh, ensured that he would be re-elected as governor five times through the 1780s and 90s. To his rivals, however, Clinton would always be a new man and a rabble-rouser who lacked the good breeding necessary for such high office. Schuyler once commented that Clinton's, quote, family and connections do not entitle him to so distinguished a predominance. Robert Livingston, for his part, uh, dismissed Clinton's supporters as, quote, unimproved by education and unrefined by honor. That was my snobbish voice, in case you were wondering. Okay, so now we've uh, introduced some of these key players, let's discuss a few of the major disputes and issues that roiled New York politics during the 1780s. First, a quick note. In general, I think it would be pretty anachronistic to try and position these three factions along something resembling today's left-right political spectrum. As a rule, people didn't really think that way. Ideological leanings could be fluid, and they often took a back seat to personal self-interest. However, some broad points do emerge. As the champion of the upstate yeomanry, Clinton and his supporters were generally cast as radical Whigs. They favored a program of harsh penalties towards former loyalists, and they jealously guarded the state's power that existed under the Articles of Confederation. The Schuyler faction, under Hamilton's aegis, uh, came to represent the interests of New York's wealthy merchant and financial class. This led them to support the formation of a stronger federal government, which could impose a more unified and coherent economic system on the entire country. The Livingstons tended to shuttle somewhere back and forth between these two poles. Notably, there was not really any natural political home for New York City's middling sort. That is, those urban artisans and small-scale manufacturers who would, in due course, form the backbone of the Tammany society. Yes, this population certainly tended to share Clinton's outspoken patriotism and radical anti-aristocratic leanings. However, their economic interests often diverged from those of the small-scale farmers who made up Clinton's political base. As we'll see, Hamilton was clicked to recognize this point. He hoped that shared economic self-interest would win over the urban artisan class and turn them into the popular backbone of his Federalist project. Throughout this period, much political debate focused on the question of how former loyalists should be treated under the new independent political system. During the war, Governor Clinton and his allies in the state legislature 
had pushed a harsh anti-Tory program. This legislation deprived loyalists of the right to vote or hold office, permitted their expulsion from the state, and authorized the government to confiscate and redistribute their property on a large scale. Naturally, this call to break up the estates of some of the largest landowners in New York found an eager audience among New York's base of small-scale farmers. The political appetite for anti-Tory measures did not abate after the British defeat. Clinton-allied radical Whigs swept to victory in New York City's first post-independence Common Council elections in December 1783. Their platform promised to increase the pace of anti-Tory property confiscations and disenfranchisement. For the time being, some more moderate voices, including Robert Livingston, gave their cautious support to this program out of fears that former Tories could regain control of the city if they could vote and hold office. In time, however, this radical surge gave rise to a backlash. Though an avid patriot during the Revolution, Hamilton made no secret of his sympathy for loyalists in the post-independence environment. Hamilton was naturally suspicious of these kinds of populist movements, and, as an avowed Anglophile, he believed that wealthy Tories could help rebuild important economic links with Britain. Thus, in private letters, Hamilton dismissed Clinton's agenda as, quote, legislative folly, which antagonized some of New York's most valuable citizens. Hamilton's legal practice received a significant boost in these years as he became the go-to attorney for wealthy Tories hoping to challenge confiscation policies in court. Throughout the 1780s, he regularly clashed with another young lawyer, Aaron Burr, who wholeheartedly had taken up the anti-Tory banner. In July 1784, Hamilton made his views public with his letter from Phocion to the considerate citizens of New York. In this pamphlet, uh, Hamilton lambasted the anti-Tory measures as illegal, immoral, and antithetical to the ideals on which the American Revolution had been fought. In particular, he argued that the mass confiscation of property without trial violated the principle of due process, which though not yet enshrined in the federal constitution, was a central element of American conceptions of liberty. Notably, Hamilton's letter included a direct appeal to New York's radical craftsmen and laborers who had initially hoped to benefit from the expropriation of Tory property. However, in Hamilton's view, the economic interests of these working men could only be served through the economic growth of society as a whole. Here's how he put it in the letter, quote, The only object of concern with an industrious artisan as such ought to be that there may be plenty of money in the community and a brisk commerce to give it circulation and activity. All attempts at profit through the medium of monopoly or violence will be as fallacious as they are culpable. In modern terms, this argument could be characterized as a rising tide lifts all boats. 
This conception of economic self-interest would be a recurring theme in Hamilton's appeals to New York City's artisans and mechanics. Before long, Hamilton's arguments proved popular, and the radical wave burned itself out. Livingston, for one, shifted away from his previous view, and he called on the state to, quote, soften the rigor of the laws against the loyalists. Though Clinton continued to win re-election as governor, more conservative and moderate figures gained power in both the city and state legislatures. By the end of the decade, most anti-Tory legislation had been repealed. Just as the debate over loyalist expropriation was winding down, another, even more significant political context was beginning to take shape around the country. Now, I don't intend to get into a full-fledged discussion of the drafting and ratification of the federal constitution. That remains one of the most frequently covered and hotly debated fields in all American history. Instead, I'd like to take a much narrower focus and consider how those debates took shape in New York State. In particular, let's look at how different groups and factions position themselves around the question of constitutional change. Once again, Alexander Hamilton was the critical figure. During these years, he emerged as New York's most potent advocate for a new political system which would grant increased powers to a centralized federal government. In May 1787, Hamilton arrived in Philadelphia ready to take a prominent role in the new constitutional convention. In one five-hour-long speech, he called for the formation of a, quote, completely sovereign national government, which would deprive the states of almost all of their political power. These kinds of extreme ideas received a tepid reaction from the other delegates. By September, the convention was done drafting the Constitution, and the document was submitted to the states for ratification. The Constitution would go into effect if nine of the 13 states voted in favor of ratification. It soon became clear that New York was as bitterly divided as any state, and the stage was set for a furious debate. Governor Clinton took a firmly anti-federalist position in opposition to ratification. In part, this decision was clearly grounded in basic political self-interest. As an immensely popular governor, Clinton was the most powerful figure in the state, and he would have nothing to gain by ceding authority to a newly strengthened federal government. There was also an economic angle to consider. Clinton and his rural upstate backers had little interest in promoting trade in New York City. In 1784, he had imposed a 2.5% tariff on goods imported from other states and a 5% tariff on British goods. Outside the city, this impost was popular as a means of raising revenue without increasing taxes. However, New Jersey and Connecticut soon threatened a trade war, and the British responded by flooding New York, the New York market with cheap manufactured goods. This combination had the potential to devastate New York City's merchants and manufacturers. 
Under the new constitution, domestic tariffs would be prohibited and the power to impose foreign tariffs would be held solely by the federal government. This would undermine Clinton's central economic agenda. Finally, there was a principled and ideological element to some anti-federalist positions. Some, for example, argued that the new federal government would prove too distant and powerful to be controlled by the people at large. In the words of Melanchthon Smith, one of the more thoughtful New York anti-federalists, quote, Natural aristocrats would have more power than the substantial and respectable part of the democracy. End quote. Others expressed concern over the Constitution's lack of a Bill of Rights. Those amendments would not be included until after the Constitution was ratified. On the other side, Hamilton led the Federalist push in favor of ratification. Most famously, he collaborated with James Madison and John Jay under the pen name Publius to produce the 85 essays now known collectively as the Federalist Papers. The Federalist makes a comprehensive defense of the new Constitution. More broadly, the essays mark a landmark and still influential treatise on the nature of American government. Most significantly for our purposes, the Federalist Papers include a powerful argument that ratification was necessary to ensure American prosperity. In Federalist 11, Hamilton wrote that a government strong enough to enact a national tariff and build a navy to protect American mercantile interests would be a boon for the country's growth. He painted a bleak picture of the alternative. Quote, the unequaled spirit of enterprise, which signalizes the genius of the American merchants and navigators, and which is in itself an inexhaustible mine of national wealth, would be stifled and law. Poverty and disgrace would overspread a country which, with wisdom, might make herself the admiration and envy of the world. End quote. These economic arguments helped build overwhelming support for the Constitution within New York City. Small-scale artisans and manufacturers were particularly supportive of calls for a national tariff, which would allow them to develop their businesses with limited foreign competition. In April 1788, statewide elections were held to name delegates to New York's ratification convention, which would be held in Poughkeepsie. While the Anti-Federalists won a majority outside the city, the Federalists scored a resounding victory in New York City itself. More than 96% of the city's voters backed the leading Federalist, John Jay. Governor Clinton, on the other hand, received a paltry 130 votes in all of New York City. While the Anti-Federalists enjoyed an initial majority at the Poughkeepsie Convention, their Federalist foes maintained certain advantages. Many of the convention's most persuasive orators, including Hamilton and Jay, were on the Federalist side. Additionally, Robert Livingston had come out in favor of ratification, giving the Constitution another influential supporter. Anti-Federalist Melanchthon Smith lamented that his opponents had, quote, the advantages of abilities and habits of public speaking.
end quote. Furthermore, events outside the city played into the Federalist hands. By the time the Poughkeepsie Convention met, eight states had already voted in favor of ratification. Just six days later, word arrived that New Hampshire had voted to become the all-important ninth state to approve the Constitution. The federal Constitution was now the law of the land, regardless of New York's ultimate decision. However, the Anti-Federalists, led by Smith, did not immediately bow to the inevitable. They proposed a proviso which allowed for the conditional ratification of the Constitution, provided that the federal government produced a Bill of Rights within a year. This proposal sparked outrage among the Federalists, who accused the Anti-Federalists of dragging their feet and risking New York's isolation within the new, new political system. Federalist newspapers even carried reports that New York City would secede from the rest of the state and ratify the Constitution on its own. On July 23rd, New York's craftsmen organized a massive parade, the so-called Grand Federal Procession, to demand ratification. Between five and 6,000 people, organized by trade, marched through Lower Manhattan. New York's bakers, for example, held aloft a 10-foot-long federal loaf. Blacksmiths marched while hammering anchors and chanting, Forge me strong, finish me neat, I shall moor a federal fleet. The highlight of the procession was a scale model of a 32-gun frigate named the Federal Ship Hamilton. Alongside the ship was a banner reading, This federal ship will our commerce revive? and merchants and shipwrights and joiners shall thrive. The grand procession marked the high point of the alliance between the Federalist and New York City's artisan class. Above all, this event points to the wisdom of Hamilton's efforts to cultivate these groups in the preceding years. In the words of one historian, quote, When George Washington was inaugurated president in 1789, no group in the country was more fervently pro-Federalist than the New York artisans. In the aftermath of this procession, the Anti-Federalists in Poughkeepsie bowed to the inevitable. They withdrew their demands for a Bill of Rights, and the Constitution was soon ratified in New York by a vote of 30 to 27. The stage was now set for New York's full participation in the federal political system. A new era was at hand. All right, I think that that's plenty for now. I hope you've all enjoyed this little two-part mini-series on the background history of New York in the 1780s. Next time, I'm happy to say that we'll be returning to the history of the Tammany Society, and oh boy, will it be a humdinger. We'll be introducing the man who first recognized Tammany's potential as a political machine. That's right, it's time to get properly introduced to Aaron Burr. In the meantime, I'd love to hear to hear from you. Uh, please do get in touch via email at TammanyHallPodcast at gmail.com or on Twitter and Instagram at Tammany History. Also, uh, it would be super if you could rate and review the show on iTunes. All right, then. Thank you and best of luck to you.